We're up to mitzvah number 46, the mitzvah of marital rights and responsibilities. My email address is rabbiwalby.gmail.com. Please send me any feedback, any questions, any comments. I do apologize if it takes me a while to respond to your email. I like to batch them together and respond to many emails at once when I get in that uh, frame of mind. So I do apologize if it takes a while, but I do respond to any email and I do appreciate all the feedback. This mitzvah shows us a very detailed, maybe even we could say tedious, list of instructions of the proper treatment of spouses. And I think if you read it, it doesn't sound very romantic, but the truth is that these guidelines constitute the basic minimum of the responsibilities of husband to wife and, to a lesser extent, wife back to husband. And I think it does provide you know, the infrastructure the scaffoldings that will ensure that the relationship will have continuity and will flourish. And I think as a way of an introduction, we could say that the Torah teaches us that every relationship is really a combination of the seriousness of the relationship, the commitment, the responsibility, the fear, if you will, and, of course, of love. And we know that that our relationship with God is a combination of love of God, which is a mitzvah in the Torah, and, of course, fear of God, which is also a mitzvah in the Torah. And those two together, the love, the positive emotions, married together with the fear, with the seriousness of the relationship, that ensures that it is a relationship that can have continuity and that can have longevity and that will flourish. And similarly, with respect to marriages, The Torah tells us that there are responsibilities that have to go both ways to ensure that the love that undergirds their relationship will have continuity. If someone thinks that they could coast on love alone and that will ensure that their relationship will last, the Torah teaches that it is not necessarily so. There has to be also responsibilities baked in. Now, it's important to stress that there is a marriage document, what's called a tsuba, in the Torah that lists all these responsibilities in addition to other monetary, so to speak, severance fines if the marriage is dissolved. And the Talmud tells us that the objective of that is to make it very difficult for the marriage to be annulled willy-nilly. It's very important to have some sort of preventative safety measures to ensure that something goes wrong, uh, someone gets angry, uh, there's a little bit of a scuffle, the couple gets into a fight, and they don't just right away say, okay, we're done here. And that's this kind of the broader idea that the marriage is grounded and it is solidified, it is cemented via these responsibilities that we're going to delineate today and via the tsuba, the document that would impose a fine, so to speak, on the husband if he would just get rid of his wife and divorce her. So the context of this mitzvah in the Torah is a continuation of the previous mitzvah that we saw, and that is the idea of a, a Jewish minor slave who could potentially get married to the master or the master's son. And... The verse continues by telling us that suppose the master or his son, they marry this woman, she becomes like a regular wife, and he cannot withhold from her the things that are given to every wife, namely food, clothing, and marital intimacy. And I say, just tell us that this is not limited to a wife who 
became married to her husband in this unusual way, but it is really present by every marriage. The responsibility of the husband is to provide these three items to his wife. And we'll see these three items. That's what's biblically mandated. But rabbinically, there are other responsibilities uh, that the husband has to provide for his wife to be able to fulfill his responsibility at a very bare minimum. And we find three very long chapters in the Rambam, in his Laws of Marriage, chapter 12, 13, and 14, that go through the responsibilities in these three areas, the food, clothing, and the intimacy. Now, we're not going to be able to go through them all, but we're going to try to cover some of the highlights, some of the interesting questions that he raises to show a little bit of the flavor of this mitzvah and, of course, uh, to hopefully absorb the underlying message, and that is that it's very important for us to make sure that our relationships is not based necessarily solely on love, but rather they are rooted, they are grounded in these responsibilities. Now, he begins with a beautiful introduction. You know, we always talk about the Rambam and how fantastic he was, but to get a sense of how organized his thinking is and how methodical his presentation of the laws is, it's nice to read uh, this introduction that he gives us in in chapter 12. He says, when someone marries a woman, regardless if she was previously married or not, regardless whether she's old or young, regardless if she's a regular Jewess or she's a convert or she's a freed slave, it doesn't matter so long as this is a marriage that is sanctioned by the Torah, he becomes obligated in 10 things and he becomes the bearer of the rights in four things. So there's four things that he gets and 10 things that he gives. The 10 things that he gives are, the first three are biblical, and that is the food, the clothing, and the marital intimacy. And then number four is to heal her if she's sick. And number five is to redeem her if she's captured, if she's taken hostage, if she's kidnapped, he has to buy her back, to bury her if she dies, to feed her beyond the basics, that she could use his home, that her daughters can be also covered by the estate if he dies, and that her male sons do inherit her severance package, so to speak, in her tuba if she dies. So those are the 10 things that a husband obligates himself when he gets married. And the four things that he earns are her income. So if she has a job, he makes that money. If she finds something on the floor, it goes to him. And the fruits of her assets, so if she has an asset, there's the principal and there's the interest, the benefits, the dividends. He gets those benefits. And finally, if she dies, he inherits her before anyone else does. So that's the the the, the 14 things, the rights and responsibilities of, of a marriage. Now, interestingly, suppose she was a high earner and she says, you know what? I want to actually keep my income. I don't want to give it to you. So she has the right to opt out of certain parts of these of this arrangement. She could say, listen, I want to keep my income. I want to keep my salary. And I'm willing to forego you feeding me. So you won't cover my expenses and I'll be able to pocket my own money. And she could do that. So she has the right to opt out of this agreement. He cannot. So he's obligated. If she wants him to cover her expenses then he has no choice but to agree to that. Now, these responsibilities are present even if they are not explicit in the marriage document. 
You don't have to spell these things out because the Torah mandates it. However, under certain circumstances, and of course the details are myriad, but under certain circumstances, a prenuptial can be done to avoid these responsibilities or certain parts of them. And the Talmud tells us that whatever is mandated by the Torah, it's not possible for you to write a document to uproot that because the Torah is higher in the pecking order. It's higher the totem pole and you cannot impose a condition that is in opposition to the explicit rules of the Torah. So that's the general introduction that the husband is responsible in 10 things and he gets in exchange for things. Now, as we read the laws, what are, what are the details of this law? It's very important for us to remember, and the Rambam reinforces this again and again, that this is not really the guidance of how you're supposed to treat your spouse. This is, in fact, the bare minimum. These are the absolute requirements that are mandated by the Torah, and there's no way to wiggle out of them. But of course, a relationship should be something that's more than just the responsibilities, the requirements, and the bare minimums. Of course, a healthy and harmonious relationship is based on a lot of love and care and concern, but nevertheless, the Torah does outline for us the bare minimums of the responsibilities. So the husband has to feed his wife. Well, how much food? does he need to give her? Is it unlimited? Is it limited? Is it the bare minimum? What is the bare minimum? So the Ram tells us that she is entitled from his possessions, from his money, from his assets to two bread meals every day. And that's the average meal of the people in town. So if everyone eats wheat bread, then he has to give her wheat bread. If it's some other kind of grain, if it's rice or cornbread or barley bread, then he has to give her what is accepted in their particular location and time in history. Beyond that, he has to give her a side dish and oil and wine if it's normal for women to drink wine in that locale. Vegetables on Shabbos, he is obligated to give her three meals. Uh, in addition to the daily two, there's three on Shabbos, plus there's meat and fish they has to give her on Shabbos. And he also has to give her spending money to use at her discretion. And the Rambam reminds us that this is for the poor person. This is someone who has nothing, is destitute. This is the bare minimum. Suppose the husband says, I cannot afford even the basics. And she says, you know what? I'm demanding you give me these basics. She could compel him to divorce her and to pay her her ksuba severance if he cannot provide even the basics. This will be grounds for her to say, you're not executing your duties, you're not fulfilling your duties, and therefore I want out, and he has no choice but to divorce her. That would be compelled by the court. Uh, Of course, if she wants to stay with him, she could forego this. This is her right, his responsibility, but she could waive her right if if she so chooses. Now, the Ramam deals with an interesting question. You know, must the husband and wife eat together? Could she demand that he comes home and has dinner with her? Or could he say, listen, I'm giving you the food and you eat it on your own. Don't force me to eat together with you. So again, this is another example of the fact that he's not talking about the ideal situation. Hopefully the ideal situation is that they, you know, they share bank accounts and they share bedrooms and they share mealtime together and they share their life together. But the question here is about the minimums and what is mandated or what is mandatory. Can she mandate 
that he eats together with her those meals? And the answer is yes and no. On Friday night, on Shabbat, they're obligated to eat together. That's a requirement. But the rest of the week, it's not an obligation, even though it is encouraged. And the Ramam goes on to talk about other laws. What about the leftover food? What about feeding children? There's an obligation to feed the children as well. Uh, what if the husband goes out of town, doesn't leave clear instructions, doesn't leave necessarily enough food for her for the duration of his trip? So the halacha is that we can seize, i.e. the court can seize his property in order to feed his wife and his children under certain conditions. Okay, so those are some of the laws about feeding one's spouse. What about clothing? That's chapter 13 of the Rambam. What is the minimum amount of clothing that a husband needs to give his wife to fulfill his duty? So the Talmud actually gives us a denomination, a figure. It says that it's 50 silver coins a year. Now, we don't know exactly what that means in modern times. So the Rambam tells us that it means that he has to pay for the basic clothing, which is a belt and head coverings, new shoes for each season. And he gives us a general rule that it has to be appropriate. Whatever the appropriate attire is for married women in that time and that place, that's what he has to cover. Some place is more expensive, some place it is cheaper. Regardless, is whatever the minimum accepted norms of that particular location, that's what the husband is obligated to pay for his wife. In addition, the husband is, requ- is required to pay for the household expenses, the various utensils. That's a subcategory, so to speak, of clothing. So chairs and bed and bedding, living space, cutlery pots, cups, bottles, the Rambam lists. Interestingly, he tells us that he has to give her a living space with a bathroom. Of course, we're used to indoor plumbing, but that's a relatively recent invention, thankfully, But in antiquity, you would have to have an outhouse. So part of the responsibility of providing a a clothing and living expenses would be to provide a home or living space with a bathroom, with an outhouse, ornaments, other pretty colorful clothing to beautify herself. That is all the bare minimum by even a pauper. And the Ram tells us, suppose someone is wealthy and he can afford... Silk embroidery or gold vessels. Well, in that case, his requirement goes up and that would also be mandatory. And in fact, if he is not covering her expenses relative to his income, to his wealth, she could go to the court and demand that he pay and they would even force him to buy the gold and to buy the expensive jewelry and the expensive embroidery, etc., fitting relative to his income. In addition, the children need to be clothed. There's more laws about uh, the local customs. For example, the Ram talks about uh, places where they would have sashes, and that's what they would wear. Again, if it is the norm of the place, it will be included in the bare minimum of what a husband has to provide for his wife. And then he tells us, interesting, he says that the husband needs to furnish his wife with clothing that she could be presentable to be able to go out. And then he adds... She's not in jail, and he cannot tell her, I don't want you going out. You have to stay at home. He has to provide her the freedom of mobility, the freedom of movement to be able to go out, to go visit her family, to visit her friends, to do acts of kindness, the Ram tells us. That is all within her rights. However, the Ram adds, 
it's important for her to not be immodest, to not be always going out, never be home. And he quotes a, a verse in Psalms that the honor and the nobility and the dignity of a princess is internal. That's one of the ideas of, of modesty where women are encouraged to not be ostentatious, to not be flashy, to not show off, and to be internal, to be to be internal builders of of the Jewish home and the Jewish future. Then he talks about some really interesting cases. Sounds very modern. You know, the husband doesn't want the wife's family to come visit. Or vice versa. The wife doesn't want her in-laws to come visit. Can they bar each other's parents from coming to their home? So the Ram tells us that the answer is yes. He can prevent her parents from coming to visit him. She can prevent his parents from coming from coming to visit. Why? Because you cannot force someone to have people that they're not interested in come to their home. This is a home. This is a domicile of him and her, of the husband and wife, and therefore neither of them can be forced to have guests that they find distasteful, that they're not interested in hosting. However, he cannot bar her, nor she cannot bar him from going to visit their parents, provided it's not in the home uh, that they share together. And there are other laws, uh, for example, if there are disagreements as to where to live, uh, disagreements about moving cities, moving countries. Again, the laws are, are very vast, and we're just trying to give a snapshot. And finally, chapter 14 of the Ram talks about the laws of marital intimacy, and he begins by talking about the frequency of conjugal relationships, and that, he tells us, based upon the Talmud, that depends on the strength and the vigor of the husband. And he gives a list of various occupations. And depending on what occupation a husband is engaged in, that would determine what responsibilities he has towards his wife in frequency of of intimacy. So he begins with young, tender, pampered, healthy people who are unemployed they sit around, they eat, they drink, they, they lounge around. These people, they're obligated each night. Now, this is Im- important to not misinterpret this. It doesn't mean that they are granted the rights of, of nightly intimacy, but it means is the woman could demand it, and this is her right, his responsibility, and therefore his responsibility is each night. What about someone who is a worker? For example, a tailor, a weaver, a builder, someone like that, they're busy, and therefore the answer is it, it, it depends. If their job is local, then it's twice a week, whereas if they're out of town, then it is once a week. And then it talks about donkey drivers and camel drivers. These are both people in the transportation business, but some of them are doing it local, and some of them are doing it like like the difference between a, a FedEx driver and uh, a trucker. You know, one does in a more local region and one does in a more like interstate. And the answer is that if someone is a donkey driver, then it's once a week, whereas the camel driver, he's responsible once a month. And then it talks about sailors. Sailors, of course, who travel for very long times at great distances. Their minimum responsibility is once every six months. And finally, Torah scholars 
who are engaged in Torah study, and the Ram tells us that somebody who's engaged in Torah study, their strength, their vigor on a physical level becomes diminished, becomes weakened, because Torah, of course, connects us to our spiritual half, and as a necessary byproduct of strengthening your spiritual half, you are weakening your physical half, and therefore the appropriate frequency of intimacy of a Torah scholar is once a week on Friday nights. And then he talks about what happens if the woman wants to determine what kind of career her husband uses because she feels like it infringes on her conjugal rights. So she can stop him from choosing certain careers. She cannot say, don't study Torah because I want to have a greater frequency. He talks about polygamy, really interesting questions that are brought up over here. What if the husband is sick and he cannot perform? Then he is given a six-month grace period to either heal or to find some other way of making her happy. But if she insists on having a fully functioning husband and he cannot perform, then after six months, she could demand a divorce, and that would be sufficient grounds for the court to enforce that. It talks about what if the woman says she is not interested in being with her husband. She is so disgusted by him. She's so nauseated by him. She doesn't want him to touch him. So in that instance, she cannot be forced to be with someone that she finds so distasteful and he could divorce her, and in that case, he would not need to pay her tsuba, her severance, because it is her who is opting out of the marriage. He would want to stay with her, and therefore, he's not responsible to pay for that. What if she is withholding intimacy from him because she wants to pain him? She wants to torment him? Then we try to get them to reconcile, and eventually, if they cannot reconcile, then a divorce would be necessary. And the Ramam concludes his delineation of these laws with a few uh, interesting questions. What if the woman has a an illness and the medical bills are very high? So we said earlier that the husband is obligated to pay for her medical bills. And now he gets the bill and he says, you know what? I'd rather just divorce her and avoid paying the bills. Can he do that? So, of course, it does not sound to be very ethical, but the question is not about ethics. The question is about rights. Is it okay? Would it work? Would a divorce in that instance work? And the answer is yes. He can divorce her and extricate himself from this responsibility. However, it is improper. This is not the proper way to behave. However, what if the woman is kidnapped and the hostage takers demand an exorbitant ransom, and the husband's like, I'd rather divorce her and free myself from being on the hook to pay for this. And in that case, he cannot divorce her to free himself from redeeming her at least the first time. Suppose the woman is a serial kidnappee. She constantly gets kidnapped and he has to pay for the ransom and she gets kidnapped again and again. In that case, she can be divorced and he could just pay her a severance and she could use that to redeem herself. He would not be required to continually pay this ransom if the woman is a serial kidnappee. 
In addition, he's responsible to bury her. Included in that is to pay for the related expenses of the burial. In some places, the Ram tells us they used to hire like criers, people to mourn over the dead. If that was the local custom, you'd have to pay for that. And if he refuses to pay for it, we would seize his property to pay for the burial and all its associated costs. The Ramam concludes by reminding us that these are not guidelines to a happy and harmonious marriage. This is the bare minimum and the correct way to ensure that the marriage will have great continuity is for each one of them to treat each other like a king and a queen. She's supposed to treat him like a king. He's supposed to treat her like a queen. He's supposed to honor her more than his body. He's supposed to love her as he loves his body. If he has a lot of money, he should give her very generously to speak pleasantly with her, to not be domineering, to not be someone who is a very strong figure, who who intimidates to not be sad, to not be melancholical, to not get angry. And similarly for her, she should honor her husband. She should have respect for him. She should treat him like a king. She should try to figure out what he needs. And that's the proper relationship. And if people, if they do that, they'll have good children and their home will be pleasant and will be praiseworthy and will be admirable. But again, there are some basic requirements, and that's the mitzvah, mitzvah number 46, the marital rights and responsibilities, what a husband has to do for his wife at a bare minimum, and what his wife gives back to him. Again, these are guidelines, but these are minimums, and we should remember the Rambam's conclusion, and that is that if we treat our spouses like a king and a queen, we'll have, uh, we'll have a very wonderful marriage, a wonderful relationship that hopefully will get better and better over time.